Welcome to a very special episode of the Green Machine Podcast Manager Series. So earlier in the week, David and Martin caught up with former Republic of Ireland women's manager Sue Ronan. Sue spoke about her decorated playing and coaching career and the changes in Irish women's football that she has seen and had a huge influence on over the past few decades. As well as this, Sue told us about her new role in FIFA, the current crop of Irish women's players, coaching Katie Taylor and the agony of being an Arsenal fan. This plus much more on this week's episode of the Green Machine Podcast. So Sue, you're very welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. You're more than welcome. Delighted to be here. So um, have you been uh, keeping up with the Euros? Who have you been following yeah. in that? Yeah, I've been watching all the games, I'm sure, like most people have. Um, it's been a bit uh, cagey, hasn't it, up until now? I think we'll probably expect to see more from some teams in the knockout stages. Um, before it started, I fancied England quite heavily. Um yeah, I think they're in abundance of attacking options, you know. I mean, they have such depth in their squad. and But, yeah, they've sort of, they've got through. They haven't conceded, obviously. They've won all their games. But, um, I mean, they haven't looked the top team in it yet. But I guess, you know, we'll see what they're made of now in the knockout rounds. Um, I don't think Southgate has probably settled on his his, his uh, 11 yet, or certainly in the, the, the top of the of the team. I don't think he really knows what his best attacking options are. Um, as an Arsenal fan, I was delighted to see Saka come in the other day and do really, really well. You know, and that obviously came about due to other other um other reasons, further reasons. I think he may not have started otherwise, only players weren't available, but I thought he was great, especially first half. I thought he really got them on the front foot and you know was making those darting runs forward. Um that he did for a poor Arsenal team all year. But uh yeah so you know, I think they'd be there and thereabouts looking at the the, the way it's 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 um, the draw, the way it's panned out now. They seem to be on the easier half of the, the draw. Um, I think the Netherlands might be on that side with them. Obviously, Germany. Germany haven't been haven't been firing on all cylinders. France have looked really good. Um, Italy, obviously, Belgium. I, I'm delighted Portugal are still there. I think Ronaldo is just something else in fairness to him. You know, he's got his five goals to equal the record already in three games. Like, in fairness to him, what a what a an athlete, you know, what a career. All he's from had. drinking water as well. All, 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 from water. Drinking, all from drinking water, exactly. <laughs> um so yeah, it'll be interesting. It's a knockout games, looking forward to them. It'll be interesting. Denmark, I thought, were really on the crest of a wave too, weren't they? They there was such such emotion and energy in their their second and third game, particularly the third one there. And I mean you wouldn't bet against them either, you know, pulling off a few shocks. I remember them doing that in ninety two when um Yugoslavia were kicked out and everyone thought Ireland was going to get their place because we finished I think the, the group undefeated and we went out yeah. and um, I think Denmark were on holiday somewhere and they were right, all on, yeah. on the lash and then they got called yeah. up the last minute and he ended up winning so you never know That's I mean right, yeah. I hope Italy do it because I have them in the sweepstakes so <laughs> That's, that's it, good reason to support them as well. <laughs> it's probably the only reason. I still don't forgive Scalacci, but I mean, if it's worth 220 quid, like I think I'd be all right with that personally. <laughs> so I'll sell myself, I'll sell myself for 10 or what? Never mind, 200 quid. Yeah, it'd be interesting. It's, it's a funny night now, no games tonight. So uh, good good uh, weekend of sport um, at the knockout games now from Saturday on. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it pans out. So um, you, you mentioned there that you're, you're an Arsenal fan. I mean, you must be yeah. suffering a bit at the moment. <laughs> Stop it, honest to God. Yeah, from my troubles all my life, you know, the bad days and um, 
and obviously in the good times under Wenger and stuff and yeah the last couple of years have been have been a struggle they really really have they've been a struggle you know one one game they might be brilliant the next game awful and next couple of games maybe awful you know so yeah but sure what do you do in your sport team you stick with them yes what, 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 what brought you into um Arsenal then like was it with the Irish connection yeah, I think it must have been Martin at the time. Like when I, I suppose my first awareness of watching, watching. I remember the FA Cup finals. I remember the big, the Saturday, you know, the big day out. And I was reading even there recently when the cup final was on, and somebody posted on Twitter. I think the schedule from years ago, where it was a whole day, you were sitting in front of the TV, it was following the coaches to the stadium, having breakfast with the teams, all that type of stuff. So it was a real a big event. So obviously back in the day, watching it, I remember. The three in a row uh, stick out in my mind in 78 when they were beaten by the underdogs Ipswich. Then the following year, I think they signed Brian Talbot, actually, who scored the, the winner in that game. You guys might be too young now to remember all this. <laughs> but uh, following year, beat Man United and um, Stapleton, actually. Did Stapleton get the winner? No, he didn't get the winner, but he got one of the one of the goals in that game. So I think it probably evolved from there, and there would have been more awareness around them because you had the Irish connection, you know. Um because no one in my house like followed Arsenal, none of my brother or my dad or anything like that. But what, yeah, what everything of, then. What do you make of? Um, I think the only Ireland player he had really that. Why they were coming through was Martin McGuinness and make a sign to McCardiff. I thought that you don't seem to get any Irish players anymore, really, do you? No, they don't. No, and I think certainly in the Wenger years they would have got abroad all the time and picked up a lot of young foreign talent, and he had. He had a huge monopoly on that at the time. I think, you know, then obviously all the other Premier League teams started to maybe replicate it or whatever. I don't know. I had scouts abroad. But, yeah, it's a long time now, I think, since there's been... There was one or two young lads in the last few years, but a long time really since there's been a big connection there. Yeah. They're always fine for it, weren't they? North and south. So, um, obviously... I mean, when you were, I take it football was a massive part in your house, played a massive role in your household. And you, you, you know, you, yeah. you obviously got to the game and all that. I mean, who, who was the, the most, was there anyone like your father or anyone like that that really got you into the game or did you just switch on the telly one day and went, I want to be a footballer? No, I, like I always remember as a really young child, um, I, I grew up most of my life in, in Crumlin, but we moved from, I think it was inner city Dublin from a small little cottage, whatever, to a house in Crumlin. And just the older brother at the time, the two younger sisters hadn't come along. And so I was only about five or six, but I just remember standing at the gate, looking out at the lads on the road playing ball. Um, and I wanted to play with them. Now, eventually I, I got to play with them and played all the way up and, and all the rest. But um, my dad played football. Now, I don't remember going to watch him play, but I obviously heard stories from my mom and his his mother, etc., going around watching. I think he seems to have been a very good junior footballer from, by all accounts, <clears throat> um, has junior cup medals, etc. And my brother, I remember when he was in secondary school, we used to go and watch him, the school team, play. Um, and those days there was no or very little I wasn't aware of any girls football going on so I think that's probably where it came from you know it was in the family my dad had played my brother played I just seemed to like it maybe it was because it was always talked about I don't know um, that's really where it came from you know how, how difficult did you find it I mean obviously now football is women's football especially like is really you know it's starting to become the global game um, finally, I mean, how, how difficult was it back then to, to get into it? Like, was it because obviously different attitudes, you know, in, in the country at the time as well? 
Yeah. As a young child, I wouldn't have been aware of attitudes. All I was aware of what was there was no opportunities and there didn't seem to be any other girls playing it you know um as i said from that first time looking out at the on the street to the boys eventually <clears throat> bridging that gap of either being invited to play or going and play i don't know how that happened but ending up being one of the boys you know playing football day in day out is all you did you put your jumpers down for goalposts you know um you played against the wall um it was it was funny though the, the advantage of being a girl in those days um of course when you played ball the neighbors rang the police because they didn't like you know they were afraid they're going to get a window smashed or a, a car smashed or whatever and uh the police of course they obviously had little else to do they'd arrive because the, the local police station was probably about 500 yards down the road up they'd come and all the boys would fly up to the top. We were in a little cul-de-sac over the wall, you know, leave the ball. And I just stand there and I didn't have to move. They didn't suspect in any way that I actually was playing ball. <laughs> so it was a bit of an advantage. Um, so, yeah, there was just no opportunities. And then I suppose when I really realized there was um, a problem here was there was a thing called the street leagues uh, took place then. Um, I think they may still take place in some parts, but... Uh, it, it was one street or road, you know, you put a team together, it was probably five aside, uh, I don't even remember now, maybe seven aside, and you played against the, the, the next street and obviously in a, a bit of a league basis, probably like a mini World Cup. Um, so our street or our, we were on uh, an avenue, a road, sorry, our roads were, were, were entering um, and I was part of the team and I wasn't allowed to play um, because apparently girls didn't play. So I don't know who, who didn't want me to play or, or whether it was an official rule or whether it was the other, the, the organizers just objected or they'd never seen it before, but effectively I couldn't play. Um, and that always sort of stuck with me, you know, it resonated that, you know, why was I not allowed to play? Because I was a young child. I don't know, at that point, maybe I was about 10 or 11 or 12, I don't know. Um, but why couldn't I play? You know, to me, it was just a normal game. Now, I didn't see any other girls playing either. You know, now, I, would, I wouldn't have been about too much other than my general area. Um, so there wasn't those opportunities. And then taking it a few years further on, I remember then um, doing the leaving search, whatever. I think I was kicking the ball out in the street the night before, going in rather than studying, you know, before before the exams. The, the leaving search was over and then I wanted to play football and I wanted to play for a team, but we, we had no idea like where football was for girls or where there was a team. And I remember my mom... Um, and, and like she wasn't a big football person but it must have been probably even listening to my dad she was we were in the hall she was looking through the phone book at the teams that you'd have heard of at the time the men's teams shamrock rovers bohemians all those teams just dialing up you know can do girls play here do you have a girls team all that type of thing nothing anyway came of it but then did my dad have a connection with he used to play with um the Duns, remember Theo Dunn, Richard Dunn's uh, uncles actually, uh, Theo Dunn used to run uh, UCD and um, one of the other brothers, Noel Dunn. And it turned out, I think one of them, his two daughters were playing, Theo's two daughters were also playing. So they were running a girls team up around Greenhill somewhere. So that's how it transpired that I actually got involved. And there was a league going on. There was um, a Dublin league and the, there's probably one or two other leagues around the country at the time. But I think from... Then obviously getting older and working in the game, what I've learned since is there were some business houses leagues, say from the mid 70s or so, predominantly maybe on the east coast of the country, say Dublin, Loud, I think, uh, Wexford, Cork, that's that, that type of, it was urbanised really. Um, so there were, there were some opportunities, but it was mostly teams around, as I say, business leagues, our civil service leagues. Um, so that's really where it sort of evolved from, where it started from. But yeah, it's I mean, so the difference now. 
was that club Well Sox, was it that, that you played for? Yeah, yeah, and, I played for Well Sox then, yeah. And they yeah. Uh, they became Shelburne, I think, didn't they? Um, yeah, so they, merged. Was, they merged, yeah, sorry. Um, well Sox, they got their name from social welfare and it was like so well, Well Sox, you know, that's the way they sort of named themselves. Um, so yeah, we merged them with Shelburne at the time. Then the whole club, I think Shelburne, there was a guy setting up a team and he wanted me to come along. And I said, well, if I'm coming, the team comes. So the whole team went. So we effectively merged. Um, and yeah, we did two good years of Shelburne, I have to say. How did, how did the call to Ireland? When did that happen? Like, how did that come about? Um, did that happen when I was at Shelburne? Or I think that might have happened even the year before. So my first year playing with Theo Dunn's team, it was Cherrywood. Um, I think I was only a season with them and some guy that was running a team in Packard Electric up in Tala had spotted me and asked me to sign for them and I did the following year um, and then it was there that I was seen because there was another girl on the team at the time who was in and around the Irish setup, a girl called Carol Purdy um, who subsequently went to America, a really, really talented girl so I think the coach might have been out looking at her or one of the scouts, um, that was under Fran Rooney's time um, and I think it was his assistant who was out watching her and it spotted me and I was invited along then. So that's sort of where that came from. I mean, we, we've heard horror stories of the FA, you know, like um, John Giles finding out he got called up by reading the newspaper, you know, stuff like that. And yeah. I mean, it, it's, 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 it's no secret that perhaps in the past that the FAI and the powers of be probably weren't the most um, communicative, uh, communicative uh, of organizations was yours was there any sort of i don't know drama with yours or was it very straightforward or see in in my day when i came onto the national team first that the international teams were, weren't run by the fai they they gave um a, a, an amount of an allowance i think but the wfai who were the women's football association who stood outside the fai they were effectively like say the sfai or the junior game like they stood outside they were affiliated to the fai but they were outside they weren't part of it really they were run by volunteers they actually ran the international teams and all those volunteers like they had to fundraise and everything like i know there's horror stories of us only having a couple of footballs and a few cones and bibs between us and having to train in fairview park and stuff but that was the reality of it because there was no money and the volunteers who were actually fundraising to try to you know make sure we could actually enter competition you know because they only got a very uh, sub uh, or a small amount um from a grant or something some sort of a small grant aid from the FAI you know I think it was only in the early 90s it was around 92 when the FAI actually took the teams under their umbrella and that was after actually a hiding we got in Sweden uh, we went to Sweden and it was one of these where you know we weren't prepared to be playing a team that was one of the top teams in the world even then we got tanked um, I, I would even tell you the score it was a horror score really for an international team but I think it was after that then um uh, that the FAI thought, no, hang on a sec, we need to do something here, you know, and um, I think they said they would take the teams on, but the, we had to step, sorry, it was only a national, an inter, a national team then, there was no underage uh, competition, but that was coming down the line, I think they sort of got wind of that, that UEFA were going to introduce underage uh, structure, an underage competition for, for girls at under 18s at the time, um, but they said, look, we'll take you on, but you need to step out of competition for a year, and tried to regroup and I suppose develop a little bit and that's what happened. I mean you could obviously play but you got you won international player of the year didn't you in nineteen ninety three. I mean that was yeah. uh, 
you know, did you feel some yeah. sort of vindication there? You know, when, when you were talking about you were you were a kid and people wouldn't let you play in the streets and all that. And there you are with an international player yeah. of the year. Yeah, it. no, absolutely. And and there's a great picture on the family home at home, uh, family wall at home. My dad came to that. Uh, th- that was in the days when it was a big event in um, in what was the hotel City West. It was like a huge gig. You know, it wasn't just in the RT recording studios. Um, and uh, you know, you, you nearly had a table of guests with you, type thing. Um, but my dad was there, and yeah, the great photograph. And he was delighted, of course. He went into his local boozer the next day and showed the photograph to everybody. <laughs> but it was, it was a huge honor, I have to say. It really was. Um, yeah, I was nominated again the following year, but uh, Olivia O'Toole well well deserved to win it that year. She she was phenomenal, you know, phenomenal player for Ireland. So, any stories from um, from that particular war ceremony? Any backstage no, no. or? Nothing, no, it's funny. Actually, I think Roy Keane was the under 16 player of the year, the year I won the senior player. Wow. Um, I'm very sure we used to get a photograph taken, or they probably still do it. I'd say you get a photograph of all the winners on the stage afterwards, you know, and I, I'm nearly sure I, I have it. And it's he, he, there's a couple of other young players as well who would have went through the system, you know, but I'm nearly sure he was under 16 player that year. Was he, was he still a little so, moody so and so back then? Was he? Sorry, Mark. <laughs> I can't tell you. <laughs> it was. Um, I was just going to say there. I, I went to the um, the FAI awards, and it was like you said. It, when it was in the city west, it was a great event. I was there the year um, Karen Duggan won a young player award. I think that year, and Kevin Doyle, I think, might have won a senior event or goal yeah, of the goal Karen, of the season. Karen Duggan when she yeah. won it underage, because I remember yeah. she's from. Um, so the first year my dad came along with me and the second year then it was nine it was 94 i was nominated and my boss at the time i worked in um i worked in uh Fun, in Crumlin Hospital in the fundraising section and my boss at the time uh, bought a whole lot of tickets I think he nearly bought a table like and, and invited guests and some of the staff came along and gave me a few tickets for for family you know so my dad came along and I can't I don't my mom didn't go to things like that I can't remember now maybe my brother or whatever went but yeah it was a, it was a really great night it really was yeah. shame I don't do it anymore it's in the studios now it's just, just it's not the same yeah, yeah. no it's not no Looked, uh, looked proper fun. There's so, some of them there now. You, you see some of the awards on, um, he's been taken off YouTube, Killing Men 2. Um, and he like shares a lot of these old ceremonies and they, they look like proper crowd, like proper atmosphere. I would love to have gone to some of those. Um, but unfortunately, they're all sterilized now. Um, so it was around, I think it was the next year, um, you started getting into management a bit. Like you, you were looking, um, yeah. And a career sort of beyond uh, a playing career in football. So what yeah. made you want to get into management? So I think I sort of fell into it really at first, to be totally honest with you. Um, we, we undertook, as part of our uh, national team, being involved with the national team at the time, they, we undertook our level one coaching qualification um, so it was delivered to us while we were actually in a camp, you know, so the days are obviously were set aside. And I remember doing the, the first was over a weekend level one and yeah, sort of had a bit of a liking to it. And um, 
then, as I mentioned earlier, uh, UEFA were introducing an under 18 competition, and I think it was identified for around 98 or so that was going to start. Um, that subsequently changed to under 19 age group, but they were introducing UEFA European Championships at, in 98. So we decided, or the FAI decided, <clears throat> the WFAI, probably the two together, decided, well, we need to start preparing players because we wouldn't have had a, a big underage structure at the time. Like there wouldn't have been the number of underage leagues there are now. There would have been very few, actually, of any. Um, I'd say probably most girls were playing with boys at the time, maybe. And there was probably one or two underage leagues, but then you had maybe girls that were probably playing on 15 year olds, maybe playing on women's teams, you know. So we needed to start trying to prepare and plan for that. So at the time, again, because of resources and lack of it, uh, Mick Cook was the manager at the time and he was a senior team manager and he was going to be also the underage manager. Um, now, he obviously realised he couldn't do it all himself. And I don't know, I mean, he took a chance with me or he gave me an opportunity in fairness to him. Um, you know, maybe he saw something in me. I, I, I suppose I was one of his leaders. I was captain in odd time in some games. I was captain of club level probably asked questions in training, you know, probably did a bit of organizing on the pitch. So maybe he saw I had something um, and asked me would I take uh, on. In 94, we had uh, decided we were, we had decided to host a, a home nations as such under 16 competition. So this is preparing the squad for 98. I think they were probably 14, 15 year olds. So together with the other countries, England, Ireland, uh, England, Scotland, the North Wales, all agreed, yeah, they were going to do the same. And we hosted first up in uh, Draw at a place called On Green On. I think it was, it's a teacher college or uh, a teacher training college or something. So again, it was low key and it was low cost. Um, so he asked, asked me, would I take the team? Um, and there's another girl who was involved in football at the time uh, who he trusted, Marie Price Bulger. Um, he, so the two of us took the team effectively because I was still playing um, and she wasn't. So literally that's what we did. You know, we played probably some friendlies. We had this competition at Easter time. It alternated, rotated around the, the different um, countries. Um, and then in 96, then when I finished playing, uh, he said to me, look, you want to come in and um, be my assistant with the, the, the team or run the 16s with me and then be my assistant when they're 18. So that's what I did. And I suppose I needed someone to trust me and give me that opportunity. And he gave to me and, I just, I suppose, looking back on it, I didn't want to finish playing. Um, he more or less said to me, look, I'm going to start now rebuilding because we had come very close in a qualifying campaign. Our last game was away to Belgium. And if we'd beaten Belgium away, we would have qualified. I think in those days, uh, the qualification process, it was sort of uh, geographically based. So we had Scotland, Wales, um, Faroe Islands, Belgium and ourselves. And only one came out of the group. Um, I think had we, I think we lost narrowly, maybe one nil at home or was it one nil to Belgium at home? But anyway, it came down to the last game away. Now they beat us in the end, one nil. We thought we had a good chance going into it, but they beat us. Um, and at the end, after the game, anyway, there was a host of really good young ones, 18, 19, coming through. And Mick decided he was going to go that direction, which you could understand because myself and a few others were the wrong side of 30, you know. Um, so he sort of said, look, you know, I'd like you to stay involved. And it was a way of staying involved at the highest level as well, you know, because I had a full-time job, as I, I said. Um, I, you know, in those days, I had to take leave, like, to be involved with the team. So it wasn't ideal, but because I wanted to still be involved and in some capacity, that's what I did. And then it just went on from there. And I mean, how, after that, I mean, how long were you um, involved as assistant in the, in the setup after that? 
So I was mix assistant until, um, until when was it? Until, so the competition started for the 18s in 98. I was his assistant right up until he left. So effectively in, in 2000, then there was more, more and more awareness, I guess, around the game and the FBI were taking up more responsibility for it. So they decided at that point, Mick, Mick, was, Mick stepped down, I think. I, I can't remember now whether his contract wasn't renewed or whether he decided to step away. I think he probably decided to step away. So at that point then... Um, the FAI uh, decided that, and the WFAI still had a, a part or were involved, in, you know, in, in a good bit of a capacity, not in terms of fundraising or anything, but in terms of, um, uh, I think they were involved in, you know, in the, 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 the bigger package as such. So they decided, look, at that point now, we need to have separate coaches. We can't have the one coach doing both roles. So the roles were up for um, an application process. So Noel King applied for the senior role. And he was successful and he got that. And I applied for the, at that point then, the age group changed to under 19s. So I applied for that and I got it. Um, and at the same time, then we started a developmental under 17 uh, squad underneath, because again, we knew a few years down the road, there was going to be competition at that age group. And if I'm not mistaken, Marie Price Bulger, the girl who had, uh, who managed the 16s with me, got, um, undertook that position at that point. So that's sort of where it went from there. Hell of a journey. Uh, I mean, that must, doing that with a full-time job, though, that must have been just absolutely, you mustn't have had any time to do anything. I was still working. I had a full-time job in, in Crumlin and uh, I was an administrator. Um, at that point, then, I think I might have moved from administration. I was sort of out on the role as part, a bit of a development officer role, you know, um, similar to that. You were out sort of trying to drum up business in terms of trying to get people to fundraise effectively that's what we were trying to do raise funds um for the hospital and and uh <clears throat> so that was my my role and yeah so every 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 holiday that i had went on time for for with the, that i needed for the team you know um and it was only in 2006 then when i went full-time into the fei because at that point then that was post genesis report and out of the genesis report was we need to have a women's department. Uh, we need to have a, a women's strategy. So out of that, then in 2005, they appointed um, they appointed a, a, a sort of a unit manager. So that was Noel King. So he undertook that position while he was also doing the national team. And then there was staffing below him. So I came in then as sort of like a national coordinator below him um, while still holding on to the 19s. So the real advantage to that was then I didn't have to take leave like you know from work I was still doing the 19s it was still nearly a like a voluntary position which it had been all along um and so but I didn't have to take leave which was a huge a huge advantage uh, a huge advantage for me yeah trying trying to get leave and get holidays for football was yeah, something else. I have a, a story to tell you, you won't believe now, from someone who's so fanatical about football in 1990 in the World Cup. So uh, I went to Italy for the qualifying games. So I was there for England game, Egypt and Holland. But I had to come home afterwards because I just couldn't get any more leave, you know. And at the time, my boss was very tough, you know, and times were different then, you know, and you had to be there. And if if uh, if he wanted you working late, you had to work late type things. So um, anyway, had the two weeks, had a great time. Um, was based in Malta. Got the catamaran ran over and back to all the games. Fantastic. We qualified. That was great. But I came back, and of course, nobody where I worked was interested in football. And was it the first knockout game? Was 
was the Romania yeah. game. Yeah, yeah Romania. First knockout game. So at the time I was living in an apartment in uh, Rathgar or somewhere. And I think the game may, might have started about four o'clock in the afternoon and I was working. There's no way to watch it in the office. I wanted to see the game. I didn't want to be listening to a score on the radio or whatever. So I decided I'm going to set the recorder for it, you know, and I leave work. I get home. The match will be just finished and ready to watch it. So that's what I did. Streets were deserted as I drove home, got home quicker than ever before. Gave myself, you know, plenty of time afterwards. I had the radio on, had earphones in, didn't want to hear nothing, just listened to music, didn't want to hear no score, didn't want to hear any cheers, nothing, wanted to watch the game. So um, let the recorder run a little bit. The old, the old days, probably a VHS or something, let it run a little bit longer than probably needed, just to be sure. Anyway, that was fine. Plenty of time gone, I thought, right, sitting down to watch the game. Sat down, watched the whole lot of it, sat through every bit of it, went through the extra time, came to penalties and the recorder stopped. Um, <laughs> so I actually didn't, I did never saw the penalties. And I didn't, I had to actually, when there was no, no Google then, I literally had to go outside or put on the news or something to find out who won the game. But that was down to, yeah, the situation. I'd like, I had no holidays to take, you know, to take the day off and go and watch it at home. And you, you, the boss wasn't having it on. You must be the only person in Ireland that didn't know <laughs> that, that we qualified. Oh, it's but I never forget it. And my friends just couldn't, couldn't believe it afterwards, you know, for someone that was so into football and not to be able to see that whole game live. But anyway, Smart. that was life back in those days. Yeah. Just moving forward, anyway, a few years. So 2010, you get the big job. You're, you're the big fish. And, uh, you know, definitely, you know, definitely probably think it back to, you know, when the kids wouldn't let you play football in Crumlin when you're growing up. And like, there you are, you're Ireland manager. Um, yeah. I mean, how, how, did, how did that come about? Obviously, I think Noel King, King, he stepped down. And, you know, how did that come about? Did you have to apply for it? Were you approached? Or, you know... Yeah, Noel actually moved up to the 21s, the, the men's 21s at the time. And I was the 19s coach, as I mentioned. And I was away at the time. Uh, um, funny enough, it was a FIFA workshop uh, at the under 20 Women's World Cup. So, and I remember the heat, it was in the middle of Germany somewhere in the middle of July. And it, it was a horrifically warm weather. We were in a hotel, there wasn't even air conditioning. It was about 35 degrees in the middle of the night. But, uh, Anyway, I got a call from, it was, um, did Noel ring me? No, might have rang me and told me he was moving on. And then Tim Koopmans at the time was the high performance director. And he rang me. Now, there's a couple of games coming up very quickly. In August, I think, there was three games coming up within a couple of weeks. They had a friendly against Switzerland arranged. And there was the end of the campaign um, that would have been the World Cup campaign, the 2011 uh, World Cup campaign. There was two games remaining in the group um, at home to Russia and at home at home to Israel. So they needed somebody pretty quickly and somebody that knew the structures, I guess, and knew the players and all the rest. So I was asked to step up on an interim basis. So I did that and saw out the three games Um we did. We we actually did very well. We I think we drew away to Switzerland. We drew at home to Russia. Um, one it was was it one all or it was one all. I think that was down in Ferry Carrick Park, and that was a big result at the time because they they would have been the they were the top team in the group. I think, um, and I think Vera Pau at the time was had was working with them. Had just was with them for a few months. She might have been um, her husband. I know was over there at the time, so she she was uh, in a position. She wasn't the national team head coach, but she might have been the high performance uh, for women's football or something. But she was there and she was with them. Um, 
And then we beat Israel. We beat Israel. We played them in Bray. I think we, yeah, we won that two or three. I can't remember. So I've done okay. Um, and then the the process then to to the advertising process obviously happened. It was a it was an open competition, and anyone could apply for it. I obviously applied for it. Threw my hat in the ring. Um, we had the interview then at some point. I can't remember when. And yeah, luckily enough, luckily enough, uh, got got the job and was delighted to be offered it. It was, I mean, the pinnacle of your career, really, you know. When you set out as, as manager, did you have any like visions in, in mind? You know, was it like you want to bring the, the women's game on? But, you know, what, what was what was your what was your outset? Obviously, qualification for tournaments. You know, we, we've had so many um, uh, close calls, but like, what what was the main goal? What was it to bring it on, or was it just qualification? Or. Um. It was both really, because um, yeah, I was working on the development side of the game too. And when I went in as the women's coach, I wasn't there wasn't a full time position for me at that point. I was um, I was the, the the head of women's football position hadn't been hadn't wasn't there at that point. But I was the I was the um, head of the department of so women's unit manager. I think was my role. So I was still doing that. Like so, I was didn't come in as a full time coach. So I ha- sort of had two hats on at once. You know, I was responsible for trying to develop the game here. But at the same time, then running the team, you want to win matches, and at that level, it is about winning matches. You know, um, but I came in. I suppose it, it was. Uh, I, I came in. Maybe it was a bit unlucky the time I came in because first of all, I came in in the middle of. Um, in the middle of a downturn in the economy uh, and uh, austerity, I suppose, and the resources were usually cut in the federate in, in the FAI all round. There was staff let go. There was some of my own staff at the time in the women's department. We built up a staff of six, and that was called like that was called down to myself and one other. Um, and there was right across the business, like those staff let go, you know, because of the downturn in the economy. So obviously that impacted then all every part of the business, um, including the national teams. Um, so we didn't have as much money to to put into the team. Um, so I came in at a bad time from that point of view. Um, I also came in at a time when a lot of the players, Noel had predominantly uh, used players. So we didn't have a national league when Noel was the head coach. So a lot of his squad were based in America. Um, and a good few of them were actually Irish Americans. So they, you know, they were they were living over there. So it wasn't just Irish girls that had gone over to college, although that was the case as well. Um, so a lot of his players were based over there. Um, but a lot of those players were coming to the end of their career uh, when I came in, number one. And number two, because I'd been involved with the underage squads for so long, I knew the talent that was there at underage. And I wanted to give them an opportunity and I wanted to try and develop them um, because they were the future, you know, and they're the, they're the girls on the doorstep here. And, you know, so that's where sort of two parts of, of my role came in. You know, I, I need to look after the, the, the home-based game as well as trying to win matches. Um, so it was at that stage, like I, I introduced Denise O'Sullivan as a 17 year old to the national team. I introduced Megan Campbell as a 17 year old to the national team. And there was others as well. So it, it was always going to take them a bit of time to get up to the level. And then they subsequently obviously moved abroad and played at a higher level. Um, so I really had a rebuild on from that point of view, a lot of players retiring players that I felt, you know, the younger players were the future that I wanted to go with anyway. So there was that rebuilding process. There was the, the funding that had been cut. Um, 
so yeah, that's really the way I went. And also the style of play. Sorry, the, the other thing was the style of play. Like Noel had his style of play. Um, where I wanted to sort of play a different style of game. I wanted to now introduce building up from the back. I wanted to try and play nice football. I know, you know, it's all it's important to get results at the end of the day, but you know, I still want to change some mindset in, in terms of what players had been used to doing and try to introduce different style, a different style of play, which is going to take a bit of time as well, you know, and you're going to have maybe negative results along the way. So that's really what happened when I came into it. Um Bit like uh, it's actually a bit like uh, Stephen Kenny tomorrow. What isn't it really? Yeah, Parallel. it is. It, it is really when you think of it. Like he's come in and he's had to rebuild, and you know he's introducing a different philosophy. And I suppose he knows a lot of the players that were here, and you know he he wants to. He knows what they can give, and he he he, he trusts them. I guess you know. So it was it was the same same type of thing. I mean, even with, with the austerity and all that, um, and having to deal with. Um, particular CEO <laughs> you should remain nameless um I mean you still had some excellent results I mean there was there was obviously you um under yourself there was Ireland's biggest victory in 12 years as a 5-0 against Montenegro in a qualifier and very unlucky against Germany as well yeah. in 2015 and uh, losing 3-2 as well you know yeah. so you know you had some close calls um you know some really you know a bit of bad luck along the way also I mean there was obviously there was clear evidence though that the team was progressing from no I mean Noel had brought it to you know had brought it as far as he could and then you've come in and you, and you brought it like you know really really far so I mean you know some obviously other players you know players you mentioned there was obviously Emma Byrne Kira Grant as well um, yeah. Nee Fahey Liverpool and uh, Louise Quinn you know if you're yeah. on Tina so you know definitely yeah. a progression yeah. there as well when absolutely and like uh, Louise as well, I think Noel might have had her sort of on the peripheral of his squad, but I, she would have been my captain under 19 and I would have yeah. brought her, introduced her then as well. And I mean, we had some great results. We really had. And like I talk about this with um, my, the guys, who, my assistants, my coaches that working with me. And, you know, we really did well considering, you know, I suppose the resources we had and, and you know, where the game was at back then. Um we were third seed, uh, um, as the team is now in, in any of our draws. And I suppose we went into each draw with the, or into each campaign with the mentality. If we want to try to, we were always trying to um, catch the team that's seeded second. You know, the first seed, they're on a different level and they definitely were then, and particularly Germany. We always seem to get Germany and France or Spain, and they definitely were on a different level, particularly Germany at the time. They'd won five European champions in a, championships in a row. Um, I think it was probably the first one they didn't win is only maybe the, the last one uh, up until that they'd won about five in a row um, so like they were nearly unbeatable you know but yet we gave them such a game here in Tala in, in Tala when like we still talk about the three goals that we conceded one of them um, it was a freak the last one at the end of the game uh, the last minute of the game it, it was a wind assist it was a cross and even the players said it was a freak goal there was a foul on Emma Byrne for uh, another one of the goals. And the third one was actually one of those penalties, you know, some you, sometimes you get yeah. it and sometimes you don't. Um, whereas we scored two terrific goals against them, you know, and off, off the back of Megan Campbell's throw-ins, but they were two terrific goals. So we did really well and away as well. We, we lost 2-0 away to them, but both goals that they got, they actually got on the break. Like we were sort of, the first goal, I remember we had a free kick outside their box, a direct free kick and whatever happened, it was blocked down and they caught us in transition and scored. But 
you know, we really did. We had some really good results. Russia were a top, uh, were a really good team as well. And another one of the groups and we drew nil all the way to them. Um, yeah, so it was just bad luck, I guess. Bad luck at times. But, uh, you know, I know the last campaign which I was involved in where Finland were the, the team we were sort of chasing, that second team. We definitely didn't perform in the two games against them. We just we just didn't. We we poor enough performances, you know. Uh, the home game was a bit better and the away game was okay until we conceded a goal. And then, yeah, we just, it didn't it didn't work out for us. It wasn't our day. When, um, when you moved on from the Ireland job, after the manager's job, did, did you feel that, you'd brought the team on as much as you could. It was time to step down, was it? Pretty much. When McCollum Bell came yeah. on. Yeah, I think so. Um, I suppose, and that's in, at the time then as well, the, the, the governance structure, I suppose, for women's football had sort of changed. So the WFAI, which I mentioned earlier, were now, they were integrating fully into the FAI, like they were going to be defunct as such. Um, there was going to be a women's committee within the FAI that was sort of responsible for the direction of the game, more so the leagues and, and the clubs and stuff. Um, and there was regional committees then. We were trying to do development all around the country because every every region of the country is different. They've all different needs in terms of the women's game. Some are further ahead than others in the different areas of the game. So this is the way it was sort of go, go, going. And they needed somebody uh, inside to sort of head that up with such, you know, um, who had the knowledge. So like I say, ahead of women's football. Um, so... At that point, then they realized like they needed a full time coach as well. Like this, someone only one foot, you know, in the role and one foot doing something else wasn't working either. So it was a case of, you know, do you want to continue on in the the, the senior position or um, or maybe this other position is, is, is available? And at that point, I'd done it for six years. And, you know, for me, that's a long stint for a, a national team coach with the top job. And, you know, if I'd done another couple of years, what, you know, was that the right thing to do? So I thought, look, maybe let somebody else come in and, and maybe new ideas, a new direction. And sometimes as well, when somebody new comes in, maybe they can uh, bang the table harder as well. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously Colin Bell came in and, you know, he, he went off then after uh, not a very long uh, stint in the job. And now we, we've got Vera Powell coming in. Um so obviously, you know, we, we, I suppose tonight we, we, we've gone through like a bit of a, a history of women's football in Ireland, you know, that you're very much part of, you know, central figure of the progression. I mean, when, when you look at how women's football start, when, when you started in football in Ireland and you see it now, like it must be, it must have come on leaps and bounds, really. Like, I mean, when, when you think back to it. It's unrecognisable, as I said earlier, it really is like there was nothing back in the day apart from some league activity and it was mostly for adults you know um whereas you know in the in the intervening years uh you know during my time and the women's department women's units time in, in the fai like we, we introduced first of all we started off when that that unit um came about in 06 like we started off trying to to have um we wanted to get more we wanted to we two sort of overriding or overarching ambitions one was to increase the participation numbers get more young girls playing and to try and improve the standards and they were the two uh overarching ambitions that we had so we introduced um 
we, we could see that young girls weren't really comfortable, um, say, going on summer camps with boys, you know, except maybe the really good player, the elite player, but generally they weren't having a good experience or the beginner or the new girl didn't really want to, they want to be with their friends. So anyway, we introduced um, soc- uh, grassroots programs specifically for girls, soccer sisters, you may have heard of it, and that's been responsible for, I'd say, you know, having probably adding maybe huge numbers to the game, you know, certainly over 30, 35,000 young girls have gone through that program in the last 10, 12, 13 years. Then further up the ladder, we introduced uh, elite programs for our, our, our um, best young talent. Um, so we were replicating the boys program at the time, the emerging talent program. Um, so then that we got that going. Then, you know, there was more, interest popping up there's more leagues around the country then we got the national league we introduced we pushed for the national league to start then obviously built on that over the years by introducing the underage leagues um so like the growth that's happened has been huge um and it is unrecognizable to where it was uh, do we need to go further of course we do you can always go further because while we're growing so is every other country you know and other countries are pumping money into into their elite structures and that's what you need to do if you want to keep up, you know. With um, Firapo, how big of a cue do you reckon she was for, for the women's game? Yeah, um, well, Vera has managed a lot of national teams, as I'm sure you know, um, from her own uh, native Holland to... She took down to semi-finals of the European Championships in 09. Um, she managed, I think her first national team position was in Scotland. Um, she managed the, the, the Scottish national team. She's been in South Africa. Uh, she's managed them to the, to the Olympics. And then she was in Russia for a while. As I said, I'm not sure she was actually over the national team, but she was involved in some capacity. So like Vera has, has a big reputation in women's football, you know, um, we would have, I would have brought her in here in 2010 when we started our national league first and uh, she would have come in on behalf of FIFA actually to deliver some coach education uh, for our coaches who were just starting out. So that was the name she had and she has, you know, so she's well respected around the game. So yeah, it was, I, I think it was a, it was a great coup to get someone of that uh, caliber to come in. You're probably you're pretty much doing that job now, aren't you, for FIFA? You're well, again. I, you're pretty much doing yes. that job now for FIFA, so it's come. Yeah, yeah. So it's like you're the big name now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because just looking here, like you're literally one of the few Irish holders of a UEFA Pro license as well, um, along with Eileen yeah. Gleeson. So, yeah. and Lisa Fallon holds one as well. Um, so yeah, so three of us are the only the only uh, Irish women. Yeah. Um, that that uh, hold the pro license, so that's yeah, that's, that's something another another thing to be proud of. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, you're a bit of a trailblazer, aren't you? See, like you're just sort of, you know, doing all the fantastic. What yeah. um? How did, well, I mean, how how did the job with FIFA come about? So that just um, for any of our listeners, like that that's what you're doing now. You're working with FIFA. So how did that how did that come about? And what are you doing with FIFA at the moment? So over the. I suppose, and I mean, this always sounds really fancy, I think, you know, when you're recognized as an expert, but I suppose because I had that broad knowledge of women's football from the developmental side to the uh, the technical side, you know, I, I would have been recognized along with a lot of other women and Vera as well, we mentioned by FIFA, by both FIFA and UEFA as say a women's football expert as such, or someone who has a knowledge of it. And 
um, they would use a pool of people, of, of women uh, that have this knowledge, and there's men as well in, in, involved that they would use, and this is both UEFA and FIFA, um, to, to help them help other countries, I guess, or to deliver uh, different programs. UEFA primarily uh, use external people like that, say, on the technical side, to try and maybe deliver coach education uh, for them in different countries and developing countries and stuff. And I've, I have done that on behalf of UEFA. Um, in terms of FIFA, um, I, I'm, I'm helping them deliver uh, development projects, which they offer to every country. Like there's 211 MAs, they call them member associations in the world. And there's, there's an opportunity for, any, for those countries to apply for a number of development programs. Um, and they range from helping a country maybe to, to write a strategy for women's football in their country based on their own environment, right up to maybe it could be building a league for them or helping them build a league or trying to get more girls playing by running festivals or doing coach education or capacity building for administrators. So effectively, that's what I'm doing now um, as a full-time consultant as such. So yeah, I would have done bits and pieces for them before. So I guess that's where they knew me from. And when they realized, you know, I was... I was available. They offered me the position, so I'm delighted. Yeah, it's really it's a real honour, I have to say. Another, another Irish person in football setting standards elsewhere. It's, it's brilliant. I was just going to say, you know, like um, it's it's amazing to hear, and again, like how your your career and how you're you're involved in Irish football over the years. And I know, like, I always name drop Rich London into our podcast, but you know, we've had you over. You've been a great supporter of our our club and, and you're recognising the importance of supporters because that's yeah. what our podcast is aimed at. Um, I know you brought Emma Byrne and Nee Fahey over before with us, but um, I, I'm kind of, I think, you know, it's brilliant to see the, the development of Irish women's football and, um, you know, Irish women in general, like we are, we have got Katie Taylor, who I think is, yeah. you know, an icon. Um, and you, you had her as a underage player as well, didn't you? That's right. Yeah, she played under 19 for me. Um, and yeah, I, I had many conversations with her dad at the time to try and hope that she'd be available for our competition because it always seemed to clash with um, a, a European or a world championship. Because, you know, before Katie got the, the recognition she absolutely deserves, before she started getting that, you know, whenever that started really in earnest in the press, like she was winning Europeans and world competitions and there was hardly any mention of it, you know, but we knew about it obviously because she was, she was uh, in our, you know, she was playing ball and we knew her obviously, but there was very little mention of it at the time in the press, but usually um, she was, she was going between both sports at the time, you know, um, uh, because maybe she didn't have to put as much time into it, obviously, or didn't have to make that choice, you know, but obviously she did make that choice and she hasn't looked back, but yeah, what a role model and inspiration to everybody she is. And didn't um, I think you told us when we were over in London that you know didn't someone give her a slap in a game once and got sent off? Well, yeah, I think that was for an old king. Um, maybe probably Emma or or Neve told you that. Yeah, she was sent off yeah. away to Italy, and yeah, I think by all means somebody I think was trying to wind her up the whole game or whatever. And then I don't know exactly what happened, but I I have heard that story too. Someone hit her. I know she got sent off, but I'm not sure what wound her up. Yeah, <laughs> but she, you know, and in fairness to her, very placid. So you know, she she somebody must have really wound her up. You know. No, no, she's a fantastic role model, isn't she? Like, it's just it's crazy what she's gone on to achieve. Oh, stop it, she's brilliant. Been to, really been to a few of her fights and it's always good atmosphere, like support. Yeah. I remember the, that's one of the top 
probably five sporting things I've been to. I've been to Champions League finals or anything. But yeah. when she won the Olympics in London, it's just the most. I, I even now back, a, you know, back in it, hairs going up because she's the most incredible. Yeah, you were at the final just, mark, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. just um, absolutely amazing. Like it was. Yeah. Uh, yeah, fantastic night. Um, you know, it was on our doorstep as well, so it was brilliant. Like, um, you, yeah, I get goosebumps when I think of it. I was at it, and I also had the tickets that night. The 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 women's final, football final, and the Olympics was on the same night. So literally, and there was a guy that I knew as well from football here. Both of us were heading across, we were across the city, like from one to the other. And you yeah. just didn't believe the boxing arena because of even the celebrations, and then trying to get across to Wembley, you know. But what a night! It was one of the best yeah. sport moments ever. Yeah. 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 Fantastic, great night. Um, the other thing I'd, I'd be interested in is, is, you know, like Stephen Kenny speaks a lot about it, you know, with because we've often been told with the men that we don't have the players trying yeah. to create like the DNA. What was your experience like with, you know, especially you said like the, the struggles we've had developing women's football? Um, you know, we've got some young, promising players. I always name drop Ellen Malloy, I think she's amazing when I've seen her playing. Um, yeah. do you think you know that that whole idea of, of trying to change something that's what. Stephen Kenny's trying to do now. Do you think we, we do have the players, we do have the coaching people who can, who can bring that kind of creativity out in our players? I think so. Um, you know, I do think so. And I think you can see evidence of that in Stephen's uh, team and the performances, you know. Um, and it's something that, as I mentioned earlier, that I try to change that mindset too. And sometimes it's a mindset, you know, because I remember um, one of the early games we were preparing away in Scotland, I think, and like that we were trying to we were trying to introduce building up from the back or something and it was players that weren't and they were established players at the time they just weren't used to doing it at that level and they were as a result they they were nervous like they were just afraid in case they make a mistake and let somebody down and you really had to encourage them and say look you know by me telling you I want you to do this I'm you know going to take responsibility if you make a mistake you make a mistake but you know this is the way I want you to play so it's really you just have to stick with it and if that's your belief if that's the way you want to play and you know your players can do it it's about encouraging them it's about practicing it and it's about sticking with it you know um, regardless really of any criticism or, or outside noise that you might get. I think as well as a nation we're kind of unique and as a kind of support I think that we get behind the team no matter what you know, and, and, and support the players no matter what um do you get a sense like that you know we've got some players now especially like the way the world has changed you know we've got second third generation around the world who qualify for Ireland that's going to probably start creeping in more and more now with the women's game as well um how would you approach kind of getting that sense of Irishness into people because I know it's kind of a controversial topic but that was the thing that came out with this video um you know thing that they did at Wembley you know understanding the kind of the English-Irish rivalry and stuff. I think, how would you embrace the coach now, modern day kind of motivational kind of things? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, players are motivated differently now, aren't they? They're different. Uh, they're di youngsters, I guess, are, are different. Not football, it's just youngsters in general. Um, all I can say is from my experience, anyone that I introduced to play for Ireland, and there would have been one or two that maybe, you know, probably had that um, qualification to a parent or a grandparent, like you didn't have to motivate them, you know, and you didn't have to try and prove anything to them. They they understood, um, you know, what what it was. They were representing Ireland. They wanted to be there. They they wanted to put that green jersey on, and they were as committed as the next player. You know, one, one player in particular, and I, I won't mention you. Like she was the loudest singer of the Irish songs on the bus <laughs> to and from the games. You know, but um, yeah. Like, 
yeah, that's just the experience I have with it. And I've, I've never had an issue trying to motivate, you know, um, and look, if you show a little video here and there, I, I've, I wouldn't, I don't see a problem with showing a video here and there. I think everyone probably does it at every level, you know? Yeah. I've kind of heard Damien Duff recently said, you know, a lot of players as a coach now, he's kind of relatively kind of new into his career on it, but he was saying, you know, you've got to just to kind of motivate and keep them playing interested in, you know, even tactical stuff. It's just all stuff they can basically read on their phones and yeah. it's got to be sharp and concise. Um, yeah. You know, I think that's just a modern day challenge for coaches, isn't it, as well? Because yeah. people are young people are used to engaging now with that kind of stuff. They don't yeah. want to be sitting through like video coverage of a whole match anymore. Yeah, no, the, like it's a fair point. Um, I suppose that, like girls are probably a little different. Like girls love to know the detail, you know, and they want to understand the process and they want and they will ask a lot of questions. And, you know, maybe maybe the guys don't have the same want to hear as much. I don't know. I, I haven't coached guys. I don't know. But I know, you know, yes, there's different ways to engage them because the way things have changed. But I certainly any experiences I've had, anyone I know that works with with a women's team or a girls team, they will ask a lot of questions and they do want to know things, you know, and they, they might go, they might want to know even you know the an eventual an answer to every eventuality sometimes they even go too deep you know instead of trusting themselves but yeah so like as i said really uh, from my own experience I, i've never had an issue trying to motivate them and trying to keep their attention i think you know they 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 know why they're you know why you want them at a meeting or they know why they're you're doing something with them they will give you that attention and they they are easy motivated and to kind of follow on from that how, how does it work like, I'm always intrigued to know this, right? So when the camps, you know, you might have three or four day camp, how, you can only do so much time on a pitch. You can only yeah. do so much time kind of tactical, maybe a meetings and things like that. Like how, yeah. how do you find that challenge of kind of keeping people interested? I know they're away from home, maybe from away from like studies or yeah. work and yeah. family. And stuff. But I just kind of, you know, we all think of footballers' life as glamorous. And, yeah. you know, I know the girls as well often work and the stuff would have to give up from their, their holiday time and stuff. How did you manage that, kind of managing that group dynamic away, like, along? Yeah, and that's the toughest piece, really, trying to keep them occupied. Because you're right, you can only, you can't train all day. You know, you can, you can only train, you train once a day. And if you're in a tournament situation, you know, where you have a match every two days, you're not even training every day. You know, you're having more recovery probably. And, rehab rather than actual training um you you can't in situations like that you're not going to be in a meeting room for for too long either because you will lose people um so you're trying to come up with different ways of keeping them occupied and it is hard you know it is difficult um if you're at home here and you're in a camp and you're in a hotel here whether that's you know they they you, you allow time for family to come in or you can go out somewhere local that you know is you know safe enough whether it's a local it's a cinema or the shops or whatever if you're away in a foreign country and those opportunities are not there it makes it even harder again so that piece is challenging absolutely and it's not all glamour you're right and i think even now at the moment it's worse because of this uh, this bubble that they're all in due to covid i think from what i gather most teams now are like they're not even sharing rooms they're in their on their own and they're in their own room so that's difficult and especially for young players i guess that are coming in and, and i think particularly in the girls side for young players that are not used to living that professional life you know they're not they're not in, at a professional club so they're finding they find that really difficult that that is or can be a challenge um so i'm sure that's uh, something that all coaches are probably finding challenging at the moment 
Speaking of the current setup you mentioned earlier, uh, when Noel King was in charge, he was using a lot of players, um, Irish American, or, or they were going to college. But now, uh, last couple of days, I mean, it was just announced with Liverpool that Leanne Kiernan and Megan Campbell have joined Liverpool. Actually, Megan Campbell has left Manchester City to join Liverpool. Yeah. And that's a, that's a sheer progression, you know, right there, isn't it? I mean, you know, yeah. we, we have players playing at the top level now um, in, yeah. in England. So, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, genius. It is a huge difference, and the English league is the like when the girl when back in those days when they were playing in America. I mean, none of them were with a team like Denise or Diana's with now. None of them were in the the top league. They were all in college um, and playing with college teams or playing. Some of the American girls are playing at a lower level, but they weren't playing in that top league. So um, you didn't even have that advantage. <coughs> Excuse me. But um, having them in England, which is effectively the top league in the world at the moment, because I mean, you see it for yourselves, I'm sure the, the money that's gone into it, the sponsor, I mean, Barclay, I think they threw five million at it. Um, like this, England are just on a different level in terms of the finances they have in general, not just in the women's game, at every element of the game. So, you know, most of the top players in Europe and indeed the world are, are playing there or looking to play there. So for our girls around them to be around the clubs, Okay, I know Liverpool are, are down the league, but you know they only got relegated. I'm sure they're uh, they, they. I'm sure they like they're one of the strong. They're one of the strong clubs as such. So I'm sure it won't be too long before they're back up again. You know, so it's it's a great environment to have them in. They're close by. There's no time difference. You know, they're you know they're training well. You know, they're they're training in a professional and playing in a professional environment. So yeah, yeah it's, it's the ideal spot. For them. It's only a matter of time before they get it right. I mean, Liverpool is a powerhouse, isn't it? So that... Yeah, exactly. You would think so. They're only going to go uh, one way, and, that, and that's definitely up. Uh, I actually got another question, actually. I was just yeah. thinking about it now, because I remember when we had Brian Kirk come over, um, and he was talking about the underage setup and stuff, and as a manager, you know, his preparation and stuff. And I found it really interesting that he kept all his notes and all his kind of team sheets and all the, he kind of seemed, maybe he's a little bit like me, a memorabilia buff, I don't know, but um, I found it really interesting going through that. And even um, we had Liam George over as well, and he had like a scrapbook, you know, uh, you remember him iconic, I think he took a penalty or something in one of them underage games. Um, he had like a scrapbook and his medal and stuff. Um, did you keep any stuff from your Irish career, like shirts or, so I mean, as a manager, I also, sorry, you don't really get, you don't really get because <laughs> <laughs> he's got to try and get it off you. <laughs> no, um, loads of stuff, Mark. <laughs> you did. All right, now, no, I just find it interesting because it like the shirts and stuff mean a lot to uh, obviously fans' programs and stuff. I, I get, I always often say on this podcast, you get, I've got boxes of rubbish in this house. To me, it's it means the world, but you know, my wife says, Oh, you got another box of rubbish there. Liam was uh, was with us that night at, at your do. Liam was there. Yeah, that he night. was. Yeah, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. Um. So what have I got? I have I got shirts from when I played. I don't think I actually have. No, actually, I don't think we got shirts back in the day. That's like we just resources weren't there. We might have got one shirt, but I I don't remember having a shirt. I don't remember a shirt to be honest. I have my caps, obviously. Um. You can probably see in the blurry background, the first and the last one up there in the wall oh, is um, I'd have some pro, couple of programs. Uh, I obviously have the award from 93, that's up there too. So apart from that, not much really, unfortunately. And because it's so long ago, there's hardly any records anywhere either, you know, which yeah. is a shame. Oh, it is interesting now. That's, it's, it's, that's, that's interesting. Uh, yeah. I've no swapsies for you. Sorry, Martin. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, but that, I would just say one, one thing I'd say on the back of that is, um, you know, I, I think it's brilliant the FAI with um, what they are doing to promote the women's game is obviously the games and Taller and things like that. But, you know, even the last games, now I know people weren't at them, but they were behind closed doors, but they brought out like commemorative programs and things like that. Yeah. And I think that, that just yeah. makes it more professional. It's engaging yeah. more with the public. Um, and I know the FAI are doing, like one of the things as a season ticket holder, they were given, you, you got access to the games as part of your season ticket package. But what people were doing then, they weren't taking them up on that or they were doing it. So I know they're looking at doing that because when sadly, when you looked at the match then, um, you know, people didn't maybe didn't go then last minute or anything. You'd have a half of, and, and games were technically sold out, but there was people demand to yeah. want to go. So I think that's, hopefully they'll get their act together a bit with that. Absolutely. That was something uh, I was there at the time and I was campaigning for them to do. And like that, yeah, you could, because of capacity, you know, people had taken up their option and I think they had to apply for the ticket and they got the ticket, yeah. but they didn't turn up. And yet you people clamoring to go that really probably would have gone. So that's something you do need to look at because without a doubt, and it's not before time, but the profile has been pushed much more now by the FAI and you know, it should have been, it, it could have been done even better a long time ago, but at least it's been done now in the last couple of years. Um, because look, visibility is everything. Um, if, you, if, if it's visible, kids can see it. They That's saying can't see, can't be, but they want to go to it. They want to play the game maybe. Then you have sponsors all of a sudden realizing, oh, hang on a sec here, there's a bit of interest here. You know, maybe we want, we want to get on this bus. Um, you have new partners then want to get involved, you know, and I mean, that's what that's that's what what happens like. And then you have media interest and you have TV interest, you know, so it's a it's a it's a circle, really, you know, and it's it's something that in in my role, I was pushing for for years, like to really build a brand around the national team. And I mean, that's what you need to do. And that's what we've done now and the FAI have done. And it's great. Um, and you have that that uh, support group now that that will watch them, and you know the games are on TV, and it's great to see all that, and you're great to see the players even doing analysis for the men's Euros. Uh, yeah. Well, that's it's really important too. Um, but yeah, it's all going the right direction, thankfully. We yeah. just need to qualify now for a final. Yeah, let's hope we do that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, hopefully, and it, and it's, it could come. I think it will come soon. Yeah, it'll click. yeah. It'll click. Hopefully, on the men's team, it'll click at some stage. Hopefully. <laughs> hopefully, we keep the faith. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think we'll leave it there, guys. Uh, Sue, thank you very much for coming on. Uh, absolute pleasure having you on. Our first Ireland manager. <laughs> I hope I haven't talked a little waffle now, but anyway, I'm sure you'll get something out. <laughs> sure no, Being with these lads really here, like, <laughs> no, no, fantastic. No, thank you so much for coming on. 